From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Though it was upstaged a bit by the first ever early signing period back in December, Wednesday marked the annual celebration of fax machines known as National Signing Day. Dan Mullen completed his first class with some big names coming through at the last minute. And we'll discuss the new recruits as well as the latest fiery turn for men's basketball in our roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Also, with softball set to start their 2018 season this weekend, head coach Tim Walton tells us how the Gators plan to follow another Women's College World Series run with expectations as high as ever. But first, it was a relatively quiet National Signing Day with just six letters of intent coming through on top of the 15 obtained back in December. Most importantly, Dan Mullen addressed some key areas of need with this crop of incoming players, and we began our chat with Scott and Chris by reviewing the rounded-out class. You know, between the early signing period and what happened on National Signing Day, 21 players into the program. That includes Randy Russell, the defensive back, who we know has been declared medically ineligible. So you got 20 guys on the roster. 15 of those guys are on the offensive uh, side of the ball. A couple are listed as athletes who played both sides in high school. We don't know exactly where they're going to fit in with the Gators. But what I know is since Dan Mullen got here, he's talked about offense, restoring Florida's, um, you know, reputation as one of the top offensive schools in the country. So they certainly uh, got some playmakers on that side of the ball. The big name, still the headliner, is going to be Emory Jones getting into the quarterback position from the early signing day. But I think what happened on National Signing Day, the addition of receiver Jacob Copeland, uh, you know, his announcement well publicized. We saw his mom walk out there. He made national news in a way that you really don't ever want to, but a kid wanted to come to Florida. That's where he's coming, and he gives – Dan Mullen said he had been a priority uh, really since the day he took over. They knew what kind of uh, playmaking ability he has. So, you know, I think getting him into the mix as someone who could potentially play next season while the jury's still out on the two transfers, uh, Trayvon Grimes and Van Jefferson, while they feel confident maybe that one of those guys, maybe both can play, they know Jacob Copeland can at least uh, perhaps be a part of the offense in 2018 so I think that was important and just adding some depth you know uh, offensive line uh, uh, Richard Garage on National Signing Day is someone that you know does that Griffin McDowell uh, another offensive lineman uh, you're always restocking that position uh, I just I think the final thing that I thought about was really this signing class has an offensive flavor to it you mentioned the Jacob Copeland situation, which obviously uh, garnered a lot of headlines. I do think it's interesting, though, because you, you guys have seen signing days for years and years, and you've seen you know players who flip, who come last minute, and you wonder sometimes what the real commitment level is. But it would seem to suggest this is a guy that is really, really passionate about coming to the University of Florida because he was willing to go so publicly against the wishes of his mom. I mean, that was clearly a, you know, a point of strife there. So I think that's that's probably a good sign for Dan Mullen to have guys like that who are really all in and you know have a real desire to be a part of the program. 
Yeah, I mean, Mullen talked uh, about him specifically saying, you know, in the 72 hours before National Signing Day, in their conversations, he could tell that Copeland was really stressed out. And basically, his message was, look, you have to make a decision that you think is best for yourself, uh, for your future. And if it's a UF, you know, we're going to welcome you with open arms. And clearly there was other people in um, Copeland's family, uh, his camp, that probably had a different uh, – Phil, but, you know, when I looked at that, what happened, I mean, you know, it was a weird situation because obviously the mother had some conflicting, uh, I guess, uh, messages going on because she, <laughs> she wore, wore an Alabama sweatshirt. That, that was a giveaway. Yeah. The I mean, Alabama shirt. Yeah, yeah the Alabama <laughs> shirt, the, uh, the Tennessee uh, beanie. It was just the, one of those weird uh, things that we only really see on National Sunday. Day. That's what makes this thing a, a train wreck some days, but also it's still – one of the most special days in the lives of some of these guys that they'll ever have because, you know, just don't know what how their careers are going to pan out. So it was unfortunate to see it play out that way. Obviously, everybody was glad to see they did a kind of hug and make up there at the end. But get back to your original point. Yeah, I mean, this is a player that appears Florida was really the place he wanted to be. Obviously, Mullen and his staff was very glad that he uh, he chose them. And um, he's going to be interested to see how he develops and if he turns into that big-time playmaker that uh, he's projected to be. Looking overall at the class, are there any positions that didn't get addressed to the degree that Dan Mullen and his staff probably wanted to? Well, I think, you know, linebacker, maybe there's still a little shortage there. There was some, They missed out on a couple of defensive linemen, but then they added one uh, late in the day in Malik Langham. Uh, you know, they're growing into their first season with a pretty good depth at uh, the defensive line. But, you know, again, it's like the offensive line. You you constantly have to uh, keep those uh, positions coming in. So he was very pleased. I mean, this is a transition class. It's never easy. But yet they finished in the top 20 rankings of all the major three recruiting services, as high as number 14 in uh, 247 sports, which probably has the most composite rankings and they they take most factors into account so that's pretty good under circumstances but Dan Mullen was clear that guess what he has real high expectations he knows that to win national titles you have to be near the top you have to be closer than 14 most of the time to the top in your recruiting rankings it doesn't guarantee success but if you get enough of those big time players if enough of them turn out you're usually going to be in the hunt uh, when the season comes around so uh, I think there's certainly a feeling of we did a good job this time, but we want to do better next time with the, the full cycle. Are there any players in particular now that you've been you know, going over their details, looking at some of their tape, any guys that you really want to see on the field that you think are going to be really impactful players once they're out there in, in the swamp? Well, I'll go back to the uh, first signing period. Uh, you know, the running back, Damian Pierce from Bainbridge, Georgia, the high school that produced Kirby Smart. If you look at this guy, he's a he's a amazing, tough runner, uh, low to the ground, huge legs, uh, very strong kid. Wouldn't be surprised to see him get some carries. Defensively, Trey Dean, a defensive back from up in the Atlanta area, is a guy that uh, I know they have a lot of high hopes for. We all know about Florida's recent history with defensive backs. They produced some really good ones uh, in the last decade. Uh, this guy fits the bill. I think he's someone that you can see on the field, uh, you know, early on. Justin Watkins is a guy that's listed as an athlete. Uh, he's played defensive back. He's played uh, receiver, running back uh, in high school. 
One thing that caught my attention is Dan Mullen addressed during his National Signing Day press conference. This guy is electric with the ball in his hands. He returned four kickoffs for touchdown in his high school career, two punt returns, rushed for 3,000 yards. You know, he's one of those guys, he's not very big, but he has some uh, quickness that you can't teach. Uh, it seems like an instinct to find the seams in the defense. So, uh, you know, those three guys uh, just kind of stand out early on. It's always kind of a crapshoot, Adam, as you know. Uh, all these guys, their film looks pretty good. They all come in with a lot of uh, accolades in high school, or they wouldn't sign with a program like the University of Florida. Yet, oftentimes, once they get here in the fall and you see them in person for the first time compared to some of the upperclassmen, you realize, hey, this is an 18-year-old kid. He looks like he's got to still develop some, and there's a lot of work to do. So you don't really know a lot more until until practice starts and the season starts and they get some opportunities. So, Scott, what's next for football? Now that signing day is wrapped, give us the, the calendar for now through the orange and blue game. Well, the big deal right now is, uh, you know, Recruiting is off. Dan Mullen is uh, going to start learning more about this team he inherited. Uh, you know, the coaches can't work with the players, obviously, on field instruction until spring practice starts. But they're going to dive into some more of the uh, roster and analyze that some and then get an idea of how these guys are progressing in the offseason program under the new strength staff. And for him, it's really about creating more buzz for the program because uh, he's got a little bit unusual this year. He's making some of these uh, speaking engagements around the state before spring practice. And he he wants to see the spring game. He wants to see the swamp pack after the signing day press conference. He, uh, he had an event over at the indoor practice facility, more than 500 people turned out. And his, one of his messages is he expects the swamp to be full uh, come the, the spring game on April 14th. And, you know, he, he's shooting high. Uh, that's a that's a pretty lofty goal. Uh, but he's trying to renew the excitement because, you you know, as we talked, Adam, his vision of Florida, his memories of the Gators are a lot different than a lot of what we've experienced maybe the last uh, seven, eight years because they were great years when he was here. He were, he, he just remembers uh, winning championships. Tim Tebow, he's uh, he said his wife sees Percy Harvin, who's back here in town, walking the dog around the neighborhood. And uh, he's, he says Percy Harvin's still the best high school film he's ever saw. He's trying to just find some of those guys like that to uh, see what he can do here to lead this program back to the uh, national championship uh, level. Moving things over to basketball, Chris, it was a really important win against LSU to sort of stop the bleeding for the Gators on Wednesday. And it seems the key to that is in part this lengthy team meeting that happened on Monday, an impromptu one at that. Uh, can you tell us how that came about and what exactly went down? I go to practice on uh, Monday, which is normally at 2.30, and the Gators were scheduled to report there to, for their normal um, review of video from the previous game, which was the Alabama game, which is basically going to be a post-mortem. Um, that was just uh, maybe maybe the worst game I've seen the Gators play, maybe since I've been here in terms of energy and being at home and a game that they really needed, given that they'd lost two straight SEC games. Uh, so what happens was the Florida went in for their film session and didn't come out for two and a half hours. Uh, that film session morphed into a a, uh, a talk, if you will, between coaches and players. Um, some candid uh, remarks were made. Uh, not everyone spoke, but there was enough. The gist of it all came about that, you know, some things had to change in terms of um, maybe sharing the basketball more, players' agendas, uh, 
and maybe above all else, effort. Because you watch that Alabama game. It wasn't pretty the last eight minutes of the game when it was clear Alabama was taking control of the game. And Florida really didn't show any fight down the stretch. Well, enter the LSU game. That's as hard as they played wire to wire this season. I don't think there's any question at that. A guy like Jalen Hudson, who to say he's not known for his uh, defense would be like saying the universe is somewhat vast. Okay, he's he played very, very hard in that game. And he played very, very hard on both ends of the floor. And that was now they have a reference point to put on the table and say, Jalen, this is you against LSU. You need to do that every game. Now, whether he's capable of that, whether Florida is capable of bottling up this energy or anger or however you want to say it. I mean, Igor Kolachov put it well. I went in the locker room and talked afterwards and asked him about the meeting. He goes, sometimes conflict is good. Sometimes you need to clear the air and get some things off your chest. Well, um, apparently they did that to the satisfaction of one game. Um, LSU is not a upper tier Southeastern Conference opponent. But I tell you one thing, they're going to South Carolina this weekend, Adam, and that's a team that's lost every game since they beat Florida here, four straight. They're going to be very upset, and uh, Frank Martin's teams are known for their fight and how hard they play and their intensity. They're going to want to defend the home court. Their backs are going to be against the wall, whatever cliche you want to throw out there. So that kind of effort is going to be needed, or Florida will just go back into another tailspin like they were entering the LSU game. Well, it sets up in an interesting way because not only do you have South Carolina, but then you come home and you've got Georgia. Those are two of the teams that most physically whipped Florida this season. And, and if we're talking about finding that energy and finding that fight, I mean, these are the, the two best test cases to try and see if that's really going to work, right? Yeah, I agree with you because those are the teams that expose them. The blueprint, Adam, is out on Florida. You run them off the three-point line and dare them to drive to contact because uh, that's not something that they've shown a, a, a real willingness to do over the course of the season. If anything, it's gone the other way. They'll settle. And that's why they're one of the one bottom 100 two-point shooting offenses in the country. So um, Georgia did it. South Carolina did it. Now they get these guys back to back. I'm sure they're going to roll out the video of those two games and say, look what you guys did. Look what they made you do. Look how you shied away from the physicality in the post. So now it's almost like it's a dare. And if you're an athlete, the worst thing you can be be is is called soft. Um, Mike White used that phrase any number of times earlier in the season, most notably after the Florida State game here. But um, if you have pride, uh, you're not going to want that to happen again. And now the South Carolina game, uh, while it wasn't like utter disaster because Florida scored some points in that game, although South Carolina made the tough plays down the stretch, Georgia game in the second half was just an abomination if you look at you know offensive efficiency. That was the game where Florida missed 20 of 21 shots at one stretch. So they have a lot to prove. That's Again, that's two games away. South Carolina game will be a great litmus test with regards to whether – this newfound energy, this newfound hustle, this newfound desire, want to, whatever you want to call it, is sincere and legitimate, or if it was just one thing that came from one meeting. Because as someone who's been involved in sports a long time, and you've been around sports a long time, you've heard the old cliche about the team meeting, mm-hmm. players meeting. or This wasn't a players-only meeting, but it was a team meeting where there's some candid uh, discussion. They don't always work. I've been around team meetings where there were blowouts, four touchdown losses afterwards and or 20-point losses afterwards. So this one was effective, but as Mike White told me after the game, it was, well, all right, it was effective today. 
Let's see if this is something that worked for one game. Let's see if it's something that's going to impact the rest of the season. And before we close the book on basketball for this week, I have to ask the question that you get asked on Twitter probably every uh, two to three minutes, which is what is the status of John Igbunu? Because we're obviously past that target date at the beginning of the season of when he could return. Uh, what is the latest to report on John Igbunu? The update on John Igbunu is no different than it was a couple weeks ago. He's uh, He hasn't been on the floor. He hasn't uh, uh, practiced. I'd say in the last 10 days, I don't, I don't think he's even been involved in the no, in non-contact drills. Uh, so uh, it's status quo. I mean, if I'm if I'm the Florida coaching staff, if I'm the Florida team, I'm operating on on the assumption that he won't be there. And if he happens to parachute in with five games left in the season, then you high five him and you welcome him and you roll him out there for a few minutes. But this isn't like some white knight that's going to come riding in on his horse and uh, and jump into the middle of the defense and all of a sudden transform this team. It's just not realistic anymore. And so Florida has to play with the uh, with the weapons they have. This isn't the NBA where there's a trade deadline. They can't match if you go out and get somebody else. So um, I think what we saw in the LSU game in terms of the team they want to be, maybe an overachieving team that can win games and make plays by just playing harder. Uh, that's what happened in that game. They played better defense. Uh, LSU's Tremont Waters came in, I believe is the 11th leading scorer in the SEC. Chris Chiosi did a number on that kid. Now, Chiosi's a senior. This kid's a freshman, but he's a dynamic scorer. He scored 27 against Arkansas with 11 assists the previous game. Chiosi held him 3 of 15, 1 of 9 from the three-point line, uh, held him to 9 points in 35 minutes. That was a leadership uh, moment for Chris Chiosi on Cheesehead Night of All Nights. Um, hopefully, the, the team can maybe take a cue from that take a cue from Jalen Hudson playing his best game, take a cue from Igor Kulichev driving and kicking the ball instead of driving to score like he has been most of the season. It's just, it remains to be seen if uh, this is going to be a trend that continues, but it certainly was a, something to launch from. And like I said, I use the term reference point. They ought to be able to look at this and say, this is the right way to play for this basketball team right now. Let's wrap up today with our PAT. Uh, which is inspired by the strange turn of events with Josh McDaniels, the Indianapolis Colts, and the New England Patriots. This uh, the strange love triangle of, of sorts that's developed this week. For those that don't know the story, Josh McDaniels had committed to being the head coach of the Colts and leaving the Patriots. And by all accounts, everything was done. And then at the last minute, he reneged decided to go back to New England and hung the Colts out to dry, especially multiple assistant coaches that had already signed deals to be on his new staff, a uh, staff which now never happened. So I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on this. You know, We've seen a lot of weird things in coaching over the years. Certainly in college this has happened a few times. But this doesn't happen that often in the NFL. Usually when you get a chance to be a head coach, you have to take that. Otherwise, you're putting yourself in a really difficult position going forward. So your thoughts on the, the Josh McDaniels saga? Well, you know, uh, during my time covering the uh, NFL, I was the Bucks beat writer, and I went through this once. Um, Bill Parcells infamously left uh, a few teams at the uh, altar, including the Bucks twice. The Glazier family had thought they had a deal with them. In fact, the deal with them was so close in 2002 that they actually hired an offensive line coach by the name of Bill Muir, who had worked with Parcells for the Jets. And they hired him before they even hired Parcells because the understanding was Parcells was coming. And then this thing all collapsed and fell apart at the last second, which gave way to the chaotic 36-day coaching search that eventually led to John Gruden being hired, but not before trading 
two number one draft picks, two number two draft picks, and eight million dollars to get him from the Raiders. Hmm. What's bizarre about this is that the whole thing with the with the staff getting in place. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about one guy, one offensive line coach who ended up coaching there with John Gruden, by the way. So one like he was left out to dry. But uh, you know, the fact that it's it's the Patriots. Um, you know, you start looking at conspiracy theories about what's going on with Belichick and all this stuff like that. And certainly Josh McDaniels has had his chance to be a to be a head coach before. But I mean, he's given up a shot to go to be with Andrew Luck and to develop a quarterback like that. And it's it's just bizarre. But I, one of the most telling developments of the whole thing, I thought, is you have a really, really respected agent by the name of Bob Lamont, who's handled some really marquee uh, head coaches. And he said, I've had it with this guy. He walked away from Josh McDaniels after that because he said, if you don't have, because it, 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 it was damage to his credibility because by all accounts, this guy was headed to Indianapolis. Like you guys are saying, it is definitely one of the oddest episodes uh, in coaching history in the NFL. But Chris mentions Bill Parcells and Tampa. I remember that well, just from an outsider watching it play out. But I, I just watched the two Bills documentary last week and, Seems like Parcells and the Belichick, they've had their some connection to some of the oddest uh, coaching uh, transactions in history. That was show focused on the time when Belichick was kind of set to take over the Jets after Parcells stepped down. The Patriots sent a uh, fax showing interest. Parcells uh, didn't show it to him. He later found out after being named head coach for the second time in the New York Jets and ended up in New England. And, well, I think it worked out pretty well uh, for Bill Belichick. And oddly here enough is Josh McDaniels, head coach is Bill Belichick as he's offensive coordinator. And the interesting speculation about this, maybe there's some kind of agreement that McDaniels has to eventually replace Belichick. And wouldn't that be uh, some irony if that's how this does turn out? But totally it's a bad look for Josh McDaniels. And the people you feel the most for are those assistant coaches who, who maybe gave up jobs thinking they were getting ready to join a staff in the Colts. And now they're looking for jobs. And boy, I saw Tony Dungy, who usually is a pretty diplomat, diplomatic diplomat. guy, basically uh, ripping Josh McDaniels for putting these guys' lives and their families' lives in chaos because of his immaturity, indecisiveness, whatever you want to call it. Uh, again, maybe it works out for Josh McDaniels in New England down the road, but uh, right now I would think he is probably a marked man from other jobs in the league because uh, what are they getting? Uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. I can envision this thing that kind of may have happened, a conversation where Josh McDaniels went to went to Belichick and said, Bill, uh, you know, I've, I've taken this job. Now, what if I pull back of it? How's it going to look? And Belichick, look, you know, how's it going to play in the media? And Belichick looked at him and go, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see that. But, I mean, uh, you know, we obviously we had something here 10 years ago with, you know, Billy Donovan and, the Dana Altman one was uh, obviously a marquee when he he left. Uh, I believe it was Kansas State to take the Arkansas job, um, and then pulled back uh, afterwards. And so, so obviously Dana Altman is now at Oregon. Billy Donovan survived quite well. So I I think you can rally from this, but certainly uh, there's damage and bad publicity right now. Interestingly enough, for people that don't know, Josh McDaniels has been a head coach once before. It was of the Denver Broncos during the Tim Tebow era. He is the guy who believed in Tebow, drafted Tebow, and ultimately uh, was shown the door, I think in part because of that. But if, if you look at his future, I guess your gut feeling now, does he get another shot to be a head coach if it's not as the successor to Belichick in New England? Yeah, I think time heals that stuff. Uh, he's thought of as a really one of 
elite play callers in the National Football League. So eventually, uh, if if that doesn't happen for him, he's gonna he's gonna have the itch to be a head coach. And like you said, uh, I mean, this may be a path to succeed Bill Belichick in time, but somebody will eventually hire him. I mean, if, you know, it's, it's, it only takes one, and there's 32 of them out there. Totally agree. Whenever I think about the coaching business, the modern era. I just think about that press conference. Then this is college football, but that press conference in Arkansas with Bobby Petrino in that neck brace and red face, and he's head coach at Louisville now. So these coaches have a way of rebounding strongly, and I would expect Josh McDaniels to have another chance. And all, all, all it is, you take the PR hit when you take the job, when people start making jokes at you about, are you going to change your mind again or that kind of thing, and that's over in 24 hours. Yep. And you, then you start working. And winning cures all. And uh, as we know, you guys are both winners, and we're happy that you're joining us, as always, this week. So we encourage people to check you out at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris on Twitter, and, of course, their blogs on FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. On a campus full of championship programs, softball has stood out over the past decade by establishing a remarkable standard of excellence. Tim Walton's program has made eight Women's College World Series appearances since 2008, won two national titles, and shows no signs of slowing down. With the second-ranked Gators starting their season this weekend in Tampa, we begin our chat with Coach Walton by finding out about the last-minute preparations for their highly anticipated debut. Well, I think the the one thing that's that's easy to notice is is how much you get yourself into a routine. And the routine being, you've got a timeline to accomplish so many things be, before the first game. And you, I don't even want to say you hope, but you really hope to try to make sure you put your team in practice situations that can most prepare them for every situation they could see in a game. And you never know what the other team's going to do. You never know what the situations of the game are going to be. And uh, so hopefully we've done a good job of getting everything on my checkup list for them to really work on. And, you know, that goes down to how we take batting practice. Who are you hitting with in the cages? Um, Where do you line up for the national anthem? You know, where do your gloves go between innings? There's a lot of things that go into a, you know, preparation uh, of team event like this because there's so many moving parts and so many moving pieces. And you, you change a lot of those pieces every single year. Is there maybe an example you can think of where one of those things that maybe your players don't understand or don't see the significance of ended up becoming important at a time during the season? Well, I can go last year, and I don't know if it was game one, game two. I, I don't remember the exact scenario, but um, you know, we, we have someone like Teresa Schwartzbeger. She's a, you know, a, a role player for us. And we stress the importance of getting your everyday bunts in every single day. And, you know, here's a kid who, you know, hardly had any at-bats last season. And we pull her off the bench in extra innings against Michigan to get a bunt down. She gets the bunt down and successfully advanced the runner that ended up, uh, I don't know that the runner ended up scoring, but the point of that is, is that you stress the importance of getting your bunts down. And every one of our players, from player one to player 19, everybody's required to, to get, you know, daily bunts in not only for hand-eye coordination, but for the situations like uh, like we put Teresa in. But we practice that so very much and so often, but I think that that's one of those that you can easily look to as, a, hey, this is really serious because you would want to be the person who gets the job done when your number's called. 
I know you don't get a lot of off time in your world, but since the end of last season and the start of this year, uh, what did you do to unwind with any free time that you did have? It's about the same every year. Once we finish the College World Series, we go right into team meetings to exit out for the summer, put in summer expectations for our players leaving campus, and then we start right into camp. From camp, we go right into recruiting. Last season, obviously, played on Monday night and Tuesday night of the College World Series finals. Traveled on Wednesday. I was on a plane Thursday afternoon, headed to go recruit. So um, recruiting takes the majority of our time through the summer. But I was able to get away a little bit. Um, you know, my family and I, we, we headed to the beach. Um, you know, we did a couple other little things. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, especially in my age now, you know, all of my free time goes to my family. Typically, it's uh, with my kids, kids and the sporting events that they play and the things that they do. We really do a good job of trying to make sure we see all of our kids' events. My oldest is a senior now, so I've been traveling around watching him play. Um, you know, his high school basketball game. So that that's really my unwind time. If you ask me my my number one hobby, it's my three kids. And the hobby that I get to do is is doing it usually with my wife. So that's the, the best part about it is she and I get to watch all of our kids' sporting events, as many as we possibly can. Getting things back on the field, you had another incredible season last year, which ended in that epic championship series with Oklahoma. Can you reflect back on what made last year's team particularly special? Well, you know, I, I think the key ingredients that went into that was the the, the quality pitching. We, we go the whole College World Series until two outs and two strikes, I believe, with the, the last hitter against Washington. We end up making an error and then give up 200 runs for, two, for a two-run homer. You know, we, we went through the World Series without giving up a lot of runs and not making mistakes. You go into the finals, and we obviously gave up a lot more runs than we had to, you know, leading into that. But I think the the, the biggest key for me um, really was the Alabama series. Um, you know, I thought that was that was what made last year so special is that our our players rose to another level. They rose to the occasion of playing a national powerhouse program like Alabama, losing the first game in the way we lost the first game. And then coming back and winning a, I don't know if it was, I think it was, I don't even know if it was 2-0, 2-1, but winning a two tight ball games to go to the College World Series again. Um, but I think it just came down to the players just seemed to really embrace their roles. We had a lot of players that, that got it. And, um, you know, I think that's the, the cool thing about it. In the College World Series finals, the, the Monday night game, I got every player in the game with the exception of one, and I was getting ready to put her into the game. And I said, if we keep going here, I'm not going to have any more substitutions. We get one player hurt, dehydrated, whatever it might be, you know, we're going to have to drop to eight. So I think that, you know, the players really showed me that they bought their, bought into their roles. They embraced the challenge of being one of the number one teams in the country all season long. And, and I think that with that, kind of their dreams became reality. They always dreamed of being that type of a player on that type of a team. And we had a lot of players step up and, and really embrace that challenge. And, you know, I was really proud of the way they handled the successes and the failures of that the season brought them. You mentioned the, the 17 inning game against Oklahoma, which obviously, I mean, no one's really seen anything like that on that stage. I know how analytical you are and how many decisions that you get to make over the course of a game in seven innings. I mean, when you look back on 17, have you spent any deal of time thinking about little things that could have changed the course of what was, I think, like close to a five-hour game? No, I, and it was more than five. I think it was like 528 or something <laughs> silly like that. But 
Um, I think the only thing it, it's funny, we didn't run out of food, but we, we probably didn't have the, the right type of food or, or hydration or rehydration things in the dugout. But I went back over and over and over again and, you know, kind of replayed that in my head. You know, what could we have done a little bit differently in that game? And what could we have, you know, maybe have done the same way? And uh, I was really pleased with most everything. Um, obviously, could we have stayed with Kelly Barnhill longer and just continued to let that go? Or could, should we have brought Delaney in? Should we not have brought Delaney in? There's so many things. When you put 17 innings, I mean, it's like almost three games in one. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to really sit down and go, okay, well, we should have done this or we should have done that. and. Once you got past seven, everything played out as you anticipate. It was uh, really one pitch. One pitch was the difference in the ballgame. In your path to becoming a national champion for the first time a few years ago, you had to experience a lot of heartbreak at the World Series before you finally broke through with that first title. And baseball followed a similar trajectory this past year. Given how well that you know that struggle, what did it mean to you to see Kevin O'Sullivan finally get that first title in Omaha? You know, it was really cool. I was fortunate enough to be able to go there and experience game one and game two. And just to see what they were able to do and manufacture the runs that they were able to get. They got some production, you know, out of a freshman. I think Austin Langworthy hit an opposite field home run to really get get a little momentum. But uh, they really, the formula that Florida softball and Florida baseball have is pitching and defense. Both teams lead the country regularly in defense. And um, both teams have, you know, quote unquote, first round prospects in their, you know, in their bullpen and first round prospects in the mound. So, you know, to me, any offense that you can get at the College World Series with, with fantastic pitching and defense, um, you're going to find yourself, you know, in the hunt for a lot of championships. And I hope this builds confidence in not only the current players on that roster, but also the coaching staff and anybody that's associated with the program that the formula for success was achieved for the Florida Gator baseball program for the first time ever. And they need to remember what the formula was. How did they coach? What did they do? How did they talk? What kind of things happened the same or different from the losing at the College World Series years to winning at the College World Series year? And I think that, the, that that's something that I know we as a program have really taken a lot of pride in. What works and what doesn't work? And are you nervous? Are your players nervous? What do you say? How do you respond? What do they say to you? And how do you respond to that? So I think that's probably what I bet the baseball program took away from that last year is how do you bottle up all the things that went well and how do you continue to try to do those in, in future years? Speaking of pitching and defense, uh, you lost two players who really excelled at those in Delaney Gorley and Justine McLean last season. And you know, you've had so many great players, it means you have to replace a lot of great players. But can you talk about the unique challenges and trying to make up for what those two brought to the team? Yeah, you know, it's it's um you, you feel probably Delaney Gorley the most, not because she's you know any different than Justine, except for she's a left handed pitcher that, you know seem to find a way to beat everybody. So she's probably, in my opinion, she's been the kind of the common denominator to our, our postseason success. Great change up has really benefited uh, all of our pitchers, pitching staff coaches from the change up. Um, her ability to go into the college world series in some meaningful games, getting the save against Alabama, getting the save against Michigan coming in against, uh, you know, last year shutting, I mean, really probably the best game I think I've ever seen her pitch was against Oregon. I think it was 2015, but the game she pitched last year against Washington at the College World Series against a team that was just, you know, really good. She was masterful. And so we're going to really miss that. And not to mention, we're going to miss 33 Smile, just the way she competed every single day. And then Justine, 
obviously her speed and her defense and what she's been able to do, you know, from, from, from corner to corner in the outfield, playing all those positions and then offensively being consistent and Chelsea Herman too, obviously she's, she's really done a good job. She homered in her first, first game in the college world series, a freshman, she homered in her last game of the senior in the college world series. So I don't know that very many people have an opportunity <laughs> to do that, but uh, we graduated a ton of rings, you yeah. know, and uh, that's a lot of rings, a lot of championships that they won. And, and not to mention just the, the great people that uh, the three of them have been and continue to be off the field. As far as this year's senior class, it's another really special group that's won a lot of games and a lot of rings. Can you talk about what this particular group of seniors have brought and the expectations for them in their final year? You know, I don't feel the expectations as I have in the past of the senior class, you know, kind of wanting to, I don't want to say will themselves to a championship, but this senior class is uh, a little bit different in my mind. They're extremely professional. They're extremely poised. They all four start, which is something very rare that you get an opportunity to have a senior class where every player is a, a starting contributor. Um, but they just, to me, it's just, it's very professional. It's very poised. They, they have a lot of confidence. They understand. They walk through the gate every single day, and you can just tell that they get it. They understand. They know what they're trying to come and accomplish today. You know, they, they notice things like, hey, you know what? We need an orange visor. We need a black visor. They just they pay attention to more details than maybe the younger classes do because they've been through it. They're experienced. And uh, I just have seen the professionalism and the poise out of this group, um, really unlike any group I've ever been around because – Again, like I said, they're all four starters. You know, they've all won national championships, and they're they're difference makers. And they only know what it takes. They they know what it takes to win the SEC, but it's the only thing they've known. They won they won three SEC championships in a row. And um, I, I've coached a long time. I don't think we have anybody that we've coached that won three SEC championships. You know, in a row. So give them a lot of credit. They they truly, to me, they get it. You've also got two juniors that are going to be very important to what you do. Uh, can you talk about the work that's been put in to try and help Kelly Barnhill and Amanda Lorenz improve on what were incredible All-American seasons? Yeah, and again, when you talk about the four seniors, there's two more players that really pay a lot of attention to detail. And particularly, um, I think that they, they come to us with a great um, self-evaluation. They know where they're at. They know where they need to be. They know how to get there. And so now it's just trying to be figure out for us is try to have it, how to navigate that space and time for them to where they can accomplish everything that they need to accomplish every day to hit their goals. And, um, you know, the good thing I feel with them, with the two of them, with Amanda and Kelly, I'm starting to feel a, a very controlled heartbeat, a very uh, professional attitude. And, and I'm not saying that they were ever uncomfortable, but I really start to see how much confidence they're displaying on a daily basis. And, you know, Kelly Barnhill won't leave the playing field until she gets X amount of ground balls. If she doesn't feel comfortable with something, she'll say, would it be possible for me to get a couple more of these or a couple more of those? And, you know, that's not something that they were able to do, either one of them as freshmen. And um, so I'm really starting to see the same thing as I'm seeing out of our four seniors, a high level um, focus on details of how they can be excellent. As far as the newcomers, it's another highly touted freshman class. Can you tell us some of the names that uh, fans are going to see most immediately and, and what they bring to the table? You'll see Hannah Adams will be the most notable freshman right off the bat because she's going to bat leadoff and play second base for us. So you'll see her right away. 
Uh, Danielle Romanello had, had a pretty good fall for us. It was continuing to get better, but she's got a little an illness right now, so she um, she's going to be out or, uh, initially. So I wouldn't anticipate. I would not not anticipate seeing her throughout the season. We just got to figure out how to get her. She's she's out of practice. She's not practicing in a while, so we got to figure out exactly what she's going to be able to do here, short term, long term. Natalie Lugo will pitch in the circle for us, so you'll see uh, some of what she does. And then we're just still trying to figure out Jordan Matthews. So she was, well, to me, she's she's so dynamic. Um, we have her playing out of position right now just because of our depth in the infield. But um, she played in the um, California playoffs, and she tore her ACL on a double off the top of the wall going into second base. So we're bringing her back from an ACL uh, reconstruction. So really not sure exactly what level she's going to play. I have to actually figure out um, what we can and what we can't do with um, Jordan here. But I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that we're going to be able to to play her this season. If we are, then that it's going to be it's going to be really good for our team because she's she's going to definitely swing that well and and has an opportunity to her upside is really 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 high. Change is frequent in college sports. I know you've had some changes to your coaching staff this off season as well. Can you tell us about those and the impact that you hope that they'll have? Yeah, um, you know, we're still intact. The majority of our, our staff is still intact. Added Eric Thomas this year. Um, and Eric's coming to us in his first ever softball coaching um, job and uh, had been with the University of Tennessee for four previous years. Um, before that, at the University of Oklahoma has been the recruiting coordinator for both those programs, um, has guys that he's recruited that, you know, have played in the big leagues or are playing in the big leagues. And so he's been able to really add a different level, a different level of dimension, a different set of eyes, a different set of organizational skills and skill sets that we're working with, not only on our players, but specifically the outfielders um, and all of our hitters. So um, it's really good to have somebody, to me, in the dugout that sees things a lot of the same ways that I do, but in the same sense, I have you know tremendous amount of confidence that you know he can be in the batting cages with, with whoever, and they're going to come back better. And they're going to come back identifying some potential um, strengths and weaknesses, whether it be from the game, whether it be from practice, whether it be from, you know, whatever. And I think that's been a, a huge, huge asset to me as a, as a coach, because I'm in time stretched a little thin trying to be the, you know, the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator, the third base coach. There's a lot of things that, you know, that we have to do in, in our sport to, to be excellent. And you know, he's been able to provide me with some things that I can take off of my plate and focus, you know, my energy and attention somewhere else, or he can focus on some people that maybe I couldn't focus on before. And um, it's, that part's been good. And having Cody back again this year is great. It's, you know, first year for everybody is usually pretty, pretty much a blur. And uh, having him back in his second year with us has also been great with our infielders. And then uh, now he's coaching first base, so it's a different role for him. But uh, it's it's one that he's excelled in in the fall and. He's able to pick things up too. He's very sharp, very intelligent, and uh, it really has helped um, to me. Even though Cody's only been here two years, Eric's been here one, and we've been to me have had have had a very stable and a very consistent fall. You know, adding Eric to the mix and Cody as well, it's such a baseball influence, and obviously with your background too. Can you just talk about the way that baseball influence translates, and and maybe things that that they would see that someone who hadn't been on the baseball side wouldn't pick up on. It's it's funny because if you ask me, go go look into, you know, what's the difference between a softball, you know, player and a baseball player, 
and obviously majority of that would be a male or female comparison in some regard. But it's funny that, you know, a baseball player typically has a larger hand size than a softball player typically. And yet our ball is bigger than a baseball. <laughs> and so it, there's a challenge in there. So I think the throwing programs that you see on a baseball side is a little bit more developed. I think there's a lot more research that's gone into how to develop a, you know, a throwing arm for a, an overhand throwing arm for a baseball player versus a softball player. Um, and the swing, obviously, the um, there's a lot of similarities to a swing from a baseball side to a softball side. Um, but some things that you probably wouldn't see is, you know, some of the um, the drop step angles that baseball players, because they have more time, you know, their their body has a tendency to to turn and open up a little bit differently. Um, you probably would see, you know, at least in my mind, a lot of low level softball players dive too much. And you don't see a lot of dives on the baseball diamond on plays that they don't need to dive for. Um, but a lot of that has to do with time. In baseball, if you if you feel the ball cleanly, you have more time than you would, you know, on on the softball diamond at sixty feet. So um, I think the main thing is just is a, is a lot of time, you know, with the, with the distance and the dimensions. Um, I think the training, how the angles work, how the throw works, um, and I think that to me, like just something I see a baseball guy having a tendency to want to throw a lot more than the softball girls do. And I don't know if it's because of the, the the size of the ball or if it's the weight of the ball or if it's the structure, you know, the biological structure of the shoulder capsule. You know, does a baseball does a baseball player have a stronger shoulder capsule or do they have a stronger shoulder capsule because they've thrown longer? There's a lot of things that you can see when you do this for so many years of things that you're like, man, I wonder if we, we did this or if we did that. But um, the one thing I very have been very, very pleased with and, I, and is it's just the common denominator between the University of Florida's baseball trainer and the University of Florida's softball trainer and our strength coaches, they train the baseball players and the softball players. So strength and flexibility is the key for our overhand throwers. And that's why we've, we've both programs have seen a tremendous amount of, of success at keeping our players, you know, quote unquote, healthy. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of sports science going on there for sure. Um, final thing for you, coach. You know, every team, it seems, has a hallmark. Some years it's power, some years it's defense, it's speed. When you look at this team as they prepare to, to take the field for the first time this week, what do you think the hallmark is of this particular team? Well, I don't want to say by design, but kind of where we are today, I think we're going to build this team with a little bit more power. You know, and, and a lot of I get a lot of questions about that. And uh, I spoke with our Diamond Club on Saturday and just talk to them about the understanding that the kind of the highs and the lows that come in recruiting. And I made a pretty, pretty big decision a few years ago to go with more pitchers. And I've gone to maybe a little bit more emphasis on a defensive player over the offensive player. Now, don't get me wrong. If I could get a player who's really good, like Kelsey Stewart, who can play defense and play offense, or if I could get a Kirsty Merritt who could play defense and play offense. I mean, that's what we want. But I made a decision. You know, the couple of our players that I recruited were clearly better defensively than they were offensively. And I still recruited them where in the past I probably wouldn't recruit that player because, you know, I just didn't think that they were going to hit enough at the collegiate level. And so some of our numbers have reflected that. We've gone down a little bit in numbers. But I don't know if you've noticed, the championships have not gone down. Uh, <laughs> the championships have gone up. And we've been able to win national championships and, and win Southeastern Conference championships. So the formula is never, it's not necessarily a science. It's just kind of what you feel you need to do to, to continue your trend of being, you know, being a good program. 
Um, but I think this team, to me, as I've as I've coached them every day now since August, you know, we're going to be a little bit more power. We really worked on um, our short game to where if we need short game, we have it. Um, if we need to put it, implement some hit and runs or things of that nature, we've got them. But I would like to say that I'm hoping this team can be a, a single, a walk, and a three-run homer type team again because I think we have we have enough players in that lineup that, that are going to provide some pop. Well, Coach, you know, a lot of people are excited about the start of Gator softball, another top five preseason ranking, and a lot of possibilities. So we wish you good luck this weekend and look forward to talking to you down the road. Yeah, thanks. Every, every game's important. Most people don't recognize the importance of preseason games and trying to really do a good job of playing out-of-region competition to build your RPI and uh, to get you into that top mix for hosting a, hosting a regional, super regional at the end of the season. So thanks for the, uh, for the wishes. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Watch men's basketball battle South Carolina on Saturday at noon on CBS, followed by a 9 o'clock tip against Georgia on Wednesday on the SEC Network. We'll be back with an all-new episode next Thursday, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Exact Tech Arena.